welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Paul S. Bass, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. Her book, The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child, published by Princeton University Press, traces the changing views of childhood and child rearing as it followed the fortunes of the nation. Beginning with the nation's founding when independence was fostered in children, to the 19th century sentimental view of childhood as a time of innocence, to today's parental anxiety about their children's success, Faz examines both the changing opinions of child-rearing experts and the class-differentiated practices of rural and urban Americans. As childhood extended into late adolescence, the transition to adulthood was harder to define. Fast challenges parents to identify what they share with previous generations and reconnect with the values that set American childhood apart from the rest of the world, the fostering of independence, self-definition, and competence. Here is my conversation with Paula S. Fass. Now let me introduce you to the author, Paula S. Fass. Paula, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. But before we get into the book, uh, we want to know something about yourself, uh, your background, how you came to write The End of American Childhood and why. I think I'll tell you a little, uh, first start by telling you how and why I, I came to write The End of American Childhood. You know, over the last 20 years, I have been exploring childhood as a subject in the Western world more generally. In other words, not just specific to the United States. And I've expanded my knowledge, which began as an American historian, to a more a, a broader, I won't say global, but I will say Western perspective. And in the process of doing that and doing a, a, a series of books, really, that have, books and articles that have looked at that, uh, two things uh, emerged and uh, became quite important, I thought. The first was that the United States had a different experience than most other Western societies. Um, it was still part of Western cultural development, but it was unique in its own particular way. And I, I can tell you later about what those particulars were in, in more detail, but let me just suggest that there was much more emphasis on the independence of children, much less emphasis on hierarchical deference within the family. More... Um, more positive roles for women within the household. Um, this began early. It began with the revolution, early in the 19th century. Um, and this was registered in the law, which was very interesting. That was the first thing that became conspicuous to me. The other was that the, the emphasis on child-rearing and on parents' roles and on the significance of parenting was very self-consciously part of American historical development so that ministers were aware of it, policymakers were aware of it, um, uh, uh, sociologists became very aware of it, psychologists and child-rearing people, obviously. But a whole slew of people were very aware of and emphasized the role of parenting. Everyone except historians. It's like historians had totally ignored it. So I found my I found my subject. I mean, once it became clear to me that this was both an important subject in and out in its own right, but then also specifically 
interesting and unusual in the American context, then I began to say, well, what I really needed to do was to look at parents and their role in both in, in all kinds of contexts um, over the course of American history. And so I, I found my subject. That's how I came to it. So I gave you a little bit of a sense of who I am. Uh, because over the tw last 20 years, I have been looking at childhood. But more generally, I'm an American social and cultural historian. And um, I began studying history over 40 years ago. Uh, my background uh, is uh, I came out of Columbia, first Barnard College, and then Columbia. If I were to dig more deeply than that, I'll tell you I'm the daughter of two survivors of concentration camps. I'm an immigrant myself. I came to the United States at the age of three and a half. And so if you've read the book, as I know you have, you know that one of the things that I find most intriguing and most significant about the American experience is the immigrant experience in the context of the, of, of the United States. And so that's, that is one of the reasons that I, one of the reasons I've framed certain kinds of subjects in the way that I have. Well, we have something in common, Paula. I'm an immigrant also. I came when I was eight years old. So... Uh, I, did, I did appreciate that part of your book when you talked about the immigrant experience and how different it is from it was from the main the main of American uh, experience. Your book demonstrates uh, how much children are neglected in American history, and you follow the development of the nation and its effect on children and parents, which I thought was very interesting. I've never looked at American political history and just cultural development through children, and I think that that is what makes your book very unique. Do you know? Do you have any idea why children have been invisible in American political history or cultural history? Why have their lives been sidelined? Um, well, it's not just in American history that their lives have been sidelined. I mean, children, and as I said, over the last 20 years, I've been exploring this whole subject. Children have been sidelined. For a long time, historians acted as if we could not look at children because children didn't leave sources. But, A, that's not true. Children do leave sources, although they are much fewer than, than others. But, I mean, they also said the same thing about slaves. I mean, we couldn't study slaves. We couldn't study African Americans because they didn't leave sources. Uh, the, the other thing is that I think on some level we never took children seriously. That the, the, the failure to take children seriously has left this big hole among historians so that we don't understand that the way they're treated, the way they're brought up, the way parents approach the, the subject intersects in vital ways, economically, politically, culturally, in all kinds of ways. So I think if I've done nothing else, it's to try to awaken historians to their tasks and that is you cannot ignore and must not ignore half of the population especially such a significant half of the population which over time which it, politicians actually are aware of how important they are um, and, and historians have, have ignored them precisely that now one of the first ideas you present is in America of the early 19th century what well, even before then uh, children were viewed in a particular way, and they were raised uh, different from, there was a break between European ways of child rearing and how the household was arranged in American households. What, what were those differences between Europe, Europe and America, and what were the sources, uh, what can account for those differences in child rearing patterns and how we looked at childhood at that point? 
I think the fundamental word to understand the difference is patriarchy. The European families were patriarchal, just as European societies were patriarchal, meaning that the father was completely in control and had ultimate authority over his wife and his children. And that was true not just in law, and it was distinctly true in law, but it was also true in the way households were arranged and the expectation of obedience and hierarchy. In the United States, starting with the revolution, and subsequent to that, and it was a successful revolution that was never challenged, unlike the French Revolution, for example, which was repeatedly challenged. The successful American Revolution disassembled patriarchy. Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. That doesn't mean men didn't have more important, didn't have a role over their wives, or that they weren't more significant politically and culturally than women were. They were in the early 19th century. But in general, women had a larger say in all kinds of household affairs than they did in European societies. And children did as well. This was the most surprising thing, that in part because women had a larger role in raising their children, and not just their infants, but their children beyond the ages of six and seven, when fathers tended to take over. Um, but they had a larger role to play. Children were also given more of a voice in the affairs of the household. They were taken more seriously, and the kinds of things they had to say were looked to with a certain kind of respect. They didn't have easy lives, Lillian. On the contrary, these children were put to work. They had various kinds of tasks, especially if they were farming children, but in, in, in urban households as well. But they were also given freedom and independence of choice in a way that was not true in European households. Part of that had to do with the larger reality of American society. And that was, we had an enormous amount of land. So the kind of apportioning of land that was crucial to the maintenance of patriarchy in Europe was not possible to maintain in the United States. Children, it was known that children could go out and earn their own livings. They could even get their own land in the early 19th century. So that they could not and were not expected to have the kind of deference to their fathers that was expected elsewhere. And, and this was extremely important, they were given freedom of choice about their future. Let me use Ulysses Grant as an example. Uh, he's a, a very pointed example in my book and one that I, that, that I use a lot. Um, uh, everyone knows who Ulysses Grant is, so I don't need to really introduce him. And he was a, a, a president of the United States, the 18th president. He was also the most important northern general during the Civil War. He's a man of great substance. Um, he started out life by literally running his family's farm. He did, by the age of seven and eight, was doing all, almost all the tasks having to do with gathering in the farm, bringing in firewood, bringing in the crops. By the time he was 10, he was doing everything with the livestock and with the horses. His father was a, t a leather tanner. Ulysses Grant loved horses and hated tanning. He hated the whole idea of doing things with the leather that animals produced. His father never asked him or required him to do anything in that area. In other words, he abided by his son's ideas, his preferences. It meant something to him. By the time Ulysses was 12, his father gave him enough responsibility so that he could actually trade 
horses on his own account. And if he took a risk and traded horses and lost money, it was his loss. His failure was something he needed to learn from. In other words, children were expected to be resourceful, to learn from their experiences. He was not abused. His father did not whip him or uh, abuse him. And he was given lots of free time to play in the surrounding countryside. He was also allowed to travel overnight by the time he was 11 or 12 years old. In other words, he was invested with a lot of maturity very early, lots of responsibilities very early, and he took those things and he ran with them. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the role, the American Revolution and the Republican form of government, obviously, to me, had a big role in this attitude about parents towards children because they had Americans who rebelled against the King of England and they had asserted their right as individual citizens to, you know, decide, make their own future. And, and of course, it just seems like this is the way they would raise their children, not to be subservient to a king, which a father now would be that to a child, but to learn how to move out of that, right? Is this, is this, this exactly. connection is just really interesting. Exactly right, Lillian. I'm so glad that you, you brought me back to the revolution and its consequences, because, of course, the revolution does disassemble patriarchy in its most pointed way by dethroning the king, I mean, removing power from him and spreading it equally among Republican citizens. Now, obviously, we know Republican citizens didn't mean all citizens, but the idea was that that kind of hierarchy, that kind of patriarchy was not to be enforced in any aspect of American society. Now, now the, slavery is a completely different experience. Now, the Republican, the Republican form of government in the United States uh, allowed men to be f- full citizens, so men were involved in the public life, which made the home... Uh, the domain where women and children were. That's now, cool. and now uh, but women had an important role in the home in supporting the republic. Absolutely. So you talk about women's role during this time uh, of, of, of a lot of freedom being fostered in children. Well, women were supposed to encourage their children to be responsible, respectable, and moral. I mean, those were the roles that women had, were assigned were assigned to women. The the divisions, and this is uh, this is not something that I have have initiated in terms of the historian. Uh, lots of gender historians and women historians before me have 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 made very clear that one of the realities of the early nineteenth century in the United States was this partitioning of the of the roles of men and women, so that women had much more responsibility within the household. And were uh, and were attributed certain kinds of characteristics that made them ideal child rearers. I mean, including aspects of purity and religion and morality. And the ministers who were very important uh, um, in the early 19th century uh, elevated women's roles into an almost and almost divine, they almost had divine qualities. Unlike men who were entrepreneurial, competitive, uh, they smoked, they drank, they swore. Women, on the contrary, had the kinds of qualities that were necessary for child rearing. But I do want to make clear that 
one of the things that was also important in child rearing was that children would not just be moral, but that they would be independent. And in that sense, they were looking to fathers, of course, as the role models for independence. It wasn't mothers who were the role models for independence. Having said that, I want to also bring girls into this conversation because it wasn't only boys who were given more independence, who were seen as having uh, resources, uh, who were provided with an early maturity. It was also true for girls. Girls, much more in the United States than elsewhere, were given a voice in family affairs, and they were uh, and they were given adult kinds of things to do. They also were given animals to raise and roles in the household. Uh, one of the girls that I talk about in the early nineteenth century, Carolyn Creevy, was a, is a, wrote a fascinating autobiography in which she talks about how her mother who was fully occupied with raising the other children, with doing things in the household, gave her a lot of leeway. She was able to roam the, in the countryside, and she was, she was free and independent in a way that we often don't imagine American girls being free and independent. By the time she was 10, she, her father gave her the right to, to, to ride the family horse. When she asked him about a particular path that she wanted to say, he literally said to her, you can find it yourself. So that those attributes that we sometimes imagine were only true for boys were also invested in girls. So, you know, when somebody went, oh, I, I, when somebody like, I was thinking about this the other day, Henry James talks about the independent woman in America. That is really what he's drawing on. He's drawing on the experiences of these 19th century girls who were far more independent and far less deferential and much more outspoken than European girls of the same age or of the same class. Now, one of the things that you talk about on a more personal, closer-to-the-heart issue here is that the death of children was very common. Women had married many children, and only a few would survive to adulthood. How did that constant death of children, um, it's overwhelming to think about it. We have no idea what that was like. People had multi lost multiple children. That was very common. How did that affect how they viewed children? Did that cause them to be valued more in some way? Or you would think they would be more protective of them. Well, I... First of all, we'll really never, ever know. I mean, the kind of sorrow that was built into mothering, the kind of natural grief that women could expect, we'll never know exactly how it influenced them. But I don't think it either made them value children more or value children less. I mean, there, ha there were historians in the past, like Philippe Ariès, who argued that, in fact, the death of children made and, and Lawrence Stone made, made mothers distance them from the emotional connection with their children so that they would not spill out and become too drawn to them, too close to them because they might lose them. I don't think that was going on either. But what I do think was happening was that women at the time could not imagine that they could actually control their children because the kind of control that we exercise today or that parents and mothers today try to exercise over their children, the kind of attempt to manage them, 
takes for granted that they have control, that, that there is an element of control in parents' lives. When mothers and fathers lose their children and can expect to lose their children, they have a different kind of fatalistic attitude that removes the possibility of control or the illusion, what I call the, in the book, the illusion of the, of the possibility of control over their children. So they can't, I mean, it is not true that they don't invest them with emotions. It is true that they can't really invest them with a future. They can't imagine for themselves that they're going to be doctors or lawyers. They, ha- they actually, uh, and this plays together with the lack of patriarchy, they allow them to create their own futures. They liberate them into their futures when those futures take place. That's how I would describe it. Okay, then you, in your second chapter you talk about uh, the impact of the Civil War, which was huge on children, uh, slave children, uh, northern children, urban children, and you talk the many ways that children were considered lost in the ni- 19th century. There were a lot of ways for children to get lost. Immigration, industrialization, abandonment, dislocation. Children were, that la- after the Civil War, it seemed like it, uh, everything got really bad for children in so many ways. Well, I think what happened is that the uh, that Americans became more aware of the possibilities that things could go bad for children in a way that I think they were not really aware of, or at least not publicly, did not publicly express before the Civil War. The Civil War made the vulnerability of children much more acute and much more public. And as you said, that was true for the children of freedmen. I call that chap- chapter children adrift. Whereas in the early, in the first half of the 19th century, there was a kind of laissez-faire view of public policy regarding children. There were very few laws about children. There were few laws about parents' obligations to children. There were no oversights over children. There were no real public controls. The Civil War, because of the vulnerability, becomes more conspicuous because of the war. So many children were orphaned by the war, north and south. And children were released from plantations and were adrift, literally, in the south. African-American children. But immigrant children, too, as you correctly said, come in, and many of them are either on the streets or they're working in factories. And so there's now a much greater public consciousness that there, that things are owed to children, that, the ch- that children need to be cared for and overseen and supervised. And so you begin to get lots of public charities. That's really the first entrance of various kinds of supervision are private charities that come on the scene. Yes. Now, there's also at this time developing something else. It is this idea of childhood as being a time of innocence, Uh, the sentimental view of childhood, which compared to the reality of what's happening to children, uh, all the tragedies that they're caught in, uh, this is an interesting development which I think, of course, a sentimental view of children is going to spur on reformers who want to protect that childhood innocence. 
Exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you, you raised the, the, the sentimentalization of children because this is an idealization that takes place and the sharp contradiction between this idealization, which starts taking place, by the way, by the late by the late 18th century, and it's true throughout the Western world, this elevation of the innocence of children and the sentimentalization of childhood, it's because we, the people carry this imagery around in their heads and they look around and the reality is so contradictory to this imagery that it impels various kinds of reformers to act on their behalf. It also means, and this is a, an important reality of the late 19th century, the post-Civil War period, that there's a lot more distinction between classes that takes place in the late 19th century than had been true earlier. The children of mi the middle class are much better taken care of. They have larger houses. They are not asked to be working. They don't work in factories, and their parents don't let them play in the streets, all of which is taking place among children of immigrants, children of laborers, children of the poor. So the contrast between immigrant children, uh, between working class or uh, lower class children and children of the middle class becomes very sharp and acute during this time. And it is the middle class ideal that becomes projected on the children of the poor and the working class. And that's, that becomes the nature of reform. It is based on the sentimental view of innocence and protection. And it becomes something that is, is seen as necessary to the welfare of all. It has both positive and negative aspects. Now, one of the things that I, that I noted was that the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children was established after the Society for the Animal Cruelty, you know, Animal Cruelty Society. I was like, really? That it, it, it doesn't doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound plausible, right? No, it I, doesn't. It, it, how did that happen? Your listeners are not seeing the big grin on my face. I mean, the, 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 the protection of animals had started taking place in the Western world generally. There was a, a very large society in London and in New York, um, the, the, uh, which was opposed to, um, uh, to using animals for research purposes. That was a, a humanit it was a humanitarian sentimental view. But nobody had imagined that children needed the same kind of protection. Don't ask me why, but they hadn't. And it was because of this very famous case in New York where a little girl was terrifically abused and someone who was coming into the, the, the apartment building heard her yells and screams, didn't know whom to turn to. So she turned to the head of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and asked him to come and intervene. That is the origin of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. So, I mean, it is, um, it is one of those things. Now, that doesn't mean, <coughs> it doesn't mean there hadn't been some efforts even before 1874 when this society is formed uh, for children who were found on the streets. There were. I mean, the Children's Aid Society comes into play in the 1850s, even before the Civil War, and a variety of orphanages and other, uh, and other kinds of organizations had already existed. But it wasn't until after 1874 that these organizations and this kind of philanthropic impulse 
and the strong drive to keep children out of factories. The anti-child labor drive is a late 19th century drive that parallels this kind of development. In other words, you're going to protect children from their parents. This is part of what's happening. The, uh, that the, It's the parents, especially immigrant parents, who are blamed for putting children to work in these exploitative situations or where they're working in the, uh, at home, even with the parents. Um, and it's parents who are neglecting their children, who are letting them roam freely on the streets where they get into all kinds of trouble. Uh, where they gamble, where they drink, where they run errands for prostitutes. I mean, this kind of exposure, which, which is questions the innocence of children. Those things now run a parallel course and they, they intensify each other. They kind of grow exponentially as a result. So the idea, the ideals of childhood were being, were changing. People thought children are innocent. We need to protect children because we want to preserve that innocence. You have also the idea of the parent-child relationship is redefined away from an authoritarian sort of model, even though American authoritarianism was not like European authoritarianism. And so motherhood and fatherhood are being redefined. But this is all happening among white elite middle classes. Immigrants are coming in with different ideas about how children should be raised they don't, they're probably thinking, what's the big deal that the children are working with the parents in the factory? Because mm. oftentimes they're working beside their parents, right? So, so you can see here this uh, cultural clash between middle class Anglo uh, expectations and immigrant realities. Definitely. There's a clash, but then the big player comes into play, and that's the schools. See, once the schools come into this picture that you've just very correctly described, and that is immigrants come with different sets of expectations about their children, they have obligations to the parents, there's a much more hierarchical, deferential perspective. So, I mean, Ulysses Grant had obligations to his father, too, but he didn't have that kind of deference and hierarchical perspective. But these young people do. And so, and, and, and here come the reformers, and the reformers are arguing that these parents are both neglecting and 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 tyrannical. They're in both. They're both ne ne negligent and tyrannical. And above all, they're not like us, right? And there's only so much you can do about it until you bring in the schools, because once the schools begin to enforce uh, child uh, attendance laws, you now have the vast majority of working class kids and immigrant kids coming into schools where they are being overseen by largely white, middle-class, Anglo teachers and principals. So now that's not the philanthropic aspect now, but it's the public aspect of schooling. And the schooling is not just an American thing, but in the United States, schooling takes on a dimension that's much greater than elsewhere because of the immigrant, uh, because of the reality of immigration. One thing that really struck out is Ulysses S. Grant, when he was growing up, he was growing up in the countryside. And these immigrant children are coming into urban environments that right away the dangers, the risks, the opportunities for getting in, tr in, in trouble, uh, strangers everywhere – 
are are much bigger than in the countryside. Yes, I mean that. I think that that distinction is one of the major transformations that's taking place in the late nineteenth century in general. You know, we teach our students immigration, urbanization. And industrialization. And, you know, sometimes our students don't get it. They, they, I mean, they're just terms. But when you look at children and look at what that, those terms mean in this context, you get it. And that is these, these, these changes are transforming the society. And children who are, who are in cities, who are experiencing industrialization and the factory, and who are the children of immigrants, those are the children we're talking about. These are the most extreme distinctions that can be drawn. So now the society is being transformed in all kinds of ways. And schools, which had already been important before the Civil War, now become much, much more important because they have to regularize the experience of young people. They have to make sure that all children are exposed to certain kinds of ideals, certain kinds of conformities, certain kinds of practices, uh, so that those differences can now be elided. Okay, now we get into the end of the 19th century, into the 20th century. These reformers, uh, it, it leads into the development or the rise of the parenting or child development expert. And you talk about the new social science, which, which was fighting depravity, dirt, and disease, largely in urban areas. And the goal at first was just to keep children alive. Absolutely. Child survival, because there was a gazillion ways for children to die in an urban environment besides disease. Work, work in factories, there's all kinds of dangers of death and abuse. And, uh, and so they're trying to keep children, they're trying to uh, develop these uh, social science methods for identifying these problems and addressing them. Now, women were very heavily involved in this development of social science. Can you talk a little bit about the development of, of these fa- uh, childhood and parenting experts and mm-hmm. how they were motivated. Well, you know, as, as our story progresses, Lillian, one of the things that happens is that there are more and more interventions within the family. Uh, just to, to, to repeat some of the things that we've been describing, I mean, there are now philanthropic organizations that oversee or have an input in the family. There's now schooling that has an input in the family, in certain families that are considered especially vulnerable. The development of scientific expertise, which comes in in the late 19th century, grows out of that, but then begins to have an independent dimension. In other words, some of the social scientists are really... Uh, a, a development out of the reformers. They're interested initially in, in, in working class kids, in lower class and immigrant kids. But eventually what you get is a different kind of expertise that's lodged not in social science, but in pediatrics and in psychology. The late 19th century sees the first development of pediatrics as a specialty. So that they, and it, and it, the, the attention and desire to keep infants especially and very young children alive is one of the things that's motivating this whole development. I found especially fascinating the fact that American pediatricians and child rearing experts in the late 19th and early 20th century worked with mothers. They saw the mother as an ally 
in this attempt to keep children alive and in their attempts to teach women all kinds of women how best to do that how to bathe their children how to best feed their children what kinds of things to look for in terms of disease hygiene in the nursery hygiene and the germ theory of disease which of course came in in the late 19th century now infuses these this kinds of advice and they turn to mothers as necessary allies initially initially uh, that whole initial campaign was also very heavily influenced by women reformers, women social scientists and settlement workers. So women are actually in the late 19th and early 20th century deeply elevated as experts in childhood. The, even the doctors look to them as necessary companions in this process. That all begins to disappear by the 1920s. As child rearing begins to turn a corner in the 1920s, and that corner is, from what you said earlier, the objective being to keep the child alive, to keep the child physically fit, to the new objective, which the child rearing, um, um, the child rearing literature and the experts of the 1920s have, which is the developmental aspect of child rearing and especially the psychological aspect of child rearing. Making children adjusted, psychologically adjusted. Because one of the things that's happening here, of course, is child survival rates are going down. So those reformers... Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but child survival is going up by yeah, 20 Right, cause exactly. Going up. Children are dying less. So, in, so these reformers who were going after depravity, dirt, and disease were actually pretty successful in reducing the number of childhood deaths. Women are having fewer children at the same yeah. time, so the families are smaller. So now there's an opportunity to turn from just basic survival to ch emotional health and really the development of the idea of a, what a normal childhood is. So you've got these norms that are being established that now is beginning to, are going to be put on, on more, mostly mothers exactly. to, to ensure that these norms are being met. That's exactly right. And I love the way you said put on. That because unlike that earlier period, which I was suggesting, there is this there is this almost equal relationship between the experts and the mothers. Not entirely. I mean, the, the experts still are in the saddle. Now, however, psychological child rearing experts like John Watson and, and others as well begin to argue that mothers really don't know how to raise their children, that they need supervision. That they need to be, that they're benighted in some ways, that they are using old fashioned techniques instead of new scientific ideas. So the, the, the scientific ideas now take over, and mothers are run ragged in many cases, especially middle class mothers who have the time, who are in, most, in almost all cases not working after they've had children by the 1920s. Um, they're being run ragged and, being, and, and told exactly what to do because of the fear now, this growing anxiety, that children actually have to be normal and it's so easy for them to become abnormal. 
that there's this very delicate mechanism, this psychological, psychological, emotional set of mechanisms that a child has. And the mother needs to know how to keep the child on the right track. The other thing that's happening, too, is the definition of the family has been a nuclear family, away from the extended family, which a lot of immigrants were still living under the idea of grandparents and aunts and uncles and unmarried uh, siblings living all in the, under the same roof. So Thanks it's picking up on that. Yes, yes. I mean, one of it's not just immigrant families, but immigrant families, of course, are, have this sense of, of multi generational obligation. But someone like Margaret Mead is basically raised by her grandmother. I mean, this is uh, she's she's raised in the in the early twentieth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and her mother is not very good at mothering, and her grandmother, who uh, Grandma Mead, lives in the household and is really raises her, and she has this enormous respect for her. It's not until later, really, by the middle of the twentieth century, that child and, and well, starting with the child rearing experts of the nineteen twenties, who keep saying, "Don't pay attention to what Grandma says; they're all." fashion, they're going to confuse you, they're not hygienic, that you begin to throw these, the, 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 the advice of the older generations out of the household. So, and, and, and by the, by, by in the 20s, there are still some families that are multi-generational, but fewer and fewer. You have the much more leaned down family of the middle class with two or three children. Now, birth control has come into play. We're not talking about the most efficient birth controls, but they do their job pretty well. Uh, birth control has come into play, and middle-class women are, have access to it. And working-class women, immigrant women, want access to it, too. I mean, someone like Margaret Sanger goes out into the slums and tries to provide birth control advice to precisely these women who are coming to them and saying, please give us help, but our, our husbands won't let us use birth control, they, but we need to sneak it behind their backs. Again, emphasizing the, the, the authoritarian, patriarchal form of the immigrant family. Now, the other thing that's happening, too, so you've got women uh, who are the considered the, the point person for the child, losing more and more of her influence or control because experts are telling her how to raise the child. But there's something else happening. School is expanding, and we're getting now into the development of the high schools. And so parents are losing more and more control over their children at younger ages. And for a longer period of time, uh, children are... are being formed by these by the school, not just the household any longer. So can you talk about the development of the high schools? And I thought that was a really interesting chapter because the high school, what it does to immigrant children who are in these high schools, how it, it creates uh, tensions between the generations because of what they're learning in the high school. It, youth culture comes out of that. And then, and then we got the 1960s. Well, let's not get to the 1960s yeah. yet, because we've got we have the 1950s, where the issue of schooling, of course, is then is then um, extended towards the children of African Americans too, which is a very important component of this story. But yes, let's do talk about the high school, which I argue is the unique American contribution of the 20th century. 
that high schools and the expansion, the development of the comprehensive high school, which brings in children of all kinds of talents, of all kinds of backgrounds, and keeps them in school for as long as possible, is completely unlike what happens in the rest of the Western world, where the high school is an elite institution, where uh, the, the proportion of children who go there are in the in uh, you know five to eight percent of the of, of children of that age group, by the by 1930, half of all American children of high school age are in high school, which is unbelievable. When I tell my colleagues in even advanced societies like Sweden about that, they they are stunned. It is the it is a deeply American thing to keep those children in school longer, and you do it in two ways. You do it by eliminating the various kinds of heavy-handed requirements like Greek and Latin, which remain the case in European institutions. So you can't go to a liceo, to a gymnasium in Europe, and not have Greek, Latin for sure, and for a long time even Greek. In the United States, we develop alternative curricula. We develop home economics uh, to keep girls in school. We develop commercial courses. Uh, accounting and things like that, and vocational education of various kinds. And we also thin out the regular kind of college-oriented academic curriculum. This makes it possible for kids to go to school and to stay in school and even to graduate, which they begin to do by the 20s and 30s, who would never have been able to do so before. Then we also provide students with a whole array of extracurricular activities. that You create a social life in the high school through athletics, through musical and dramatic performances, through various kinds of clubs uh, that makes life in high school really an alternative to life in the family. And it provides, as you said, for the development of a peer culture and the grounding of a youth culture which engrosses immigrant children. They have the ability now to become Americanized in all kinds of ways, through their peers as well as through their classrooms, and to have an alternative to the demands of their families. In the most extreme cases, and I, I talk about one of them in my book, girls, uh, even girls, and this is, again, uh, boys and girls in the United States have a, a very different experience than the kind of distinctions that are often drawn in Europe, but um, literally breaks away from the family and doesn't live at home any longer. And this is facilitated by her teachers and in, in her school. It's facilitated by her friends. In other words, they get ammunition to oppose the kind of patriarchal imposed authority that they have in the family. And there are constant complaints among immigrants, among immigrant parents, about losing control over their children. Their children are in the saddle, they say. They won't listen to them. And as some of the Jewish parents complain, you know, when it's the girl in the family, it's my daughter who's, who's, who's telling us what to do, they're just stunned. And that is, an, that is, in some ways, the high school becomes, in some ways, a way to enforce in the 20th century the kinds of things that Ulysses Grant was experiencing in the 19th century where the father's authority is disassembled, where there is much more independence for children, 
There's more, and they're provided, and this is something the schools and only the schools can do. They're provided with resources in order to find their own way instead of having to follow in their parents' path. Because what does education provide? Resources to do things differently, to have a different career and a different future than what their parents might have planned out for them. Now, one of the things that's happening in the 1950s is school desegregation, in which African-American children uh, are put on the front lines of social social reform and social change. If you really, we don't really think about it. We, we don't think about the fact that it was the children who actually had to go into these schools, not their parents. And that is pretty, if you think about it, it's so poignant to think about little children having to encounter and challenge a system. And they were, it's just, talk a little bit about the African Americans and desegregation. Well, the, the, the transformation that the Brown versus the Board of Education um, um, decision brought into play in 1954, as you well put it, put the children on the barricades. I mean, it really put the children out there as those who were going to be the advance guard of this transformation. Because schooling, and it's because schooling was so important, and it had already been developed as a resource with immigrants, that it now becomes a resource for African-American kids, too. You know, integrating high schools, bringing three or four or five children into a high school in Alabama or into into a high school in Mississippi, that was the revolution. Those kids had to march through hostile crowds, hundreds of media people and photographers, and literally have the courage to be able to do that, even when they were often dissuaded by their own parents. Don't do it. Let's wait. Why should you be the one out there? They, they, they were willing to do that. I mean, we often don't, as you, as you correctly pointed out, adequately acknowledge the degree to which these young people were really pioneers, that they really had the, the, the courage, the bravery to take on the society. They did it, of course, in, in, at, at Woolworth's count, lunch encounters, too, where, they, where it was 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds year, who sat down and said, you have to serve us. So, yes, they were on the front lines. And, um, and, and the, the, that, the change that the, that the Brown decision made, I think, was crucial. You know, there's so much in your book. We could talk for two hours, but I'll, there's something I want to get to so that we don't run out of time. And that has to do with... Uh, where we are sort of today, which we've got uh, parenting now is a choice. Uh, we have more single families, uh, single parent families. We also have all kinds of different family configurations. The nuclear family now is probably in the minority in terms of how children are, in what kind of situations children are living. What are the the concerns of parents today. And now it's very hard to talk about the American parent as one ideal because we have so many different kinds of people, religious differences, ethnic differences, you know, immigration, uh, class differences, that it's hard to talk about 
the ideal child today or the ideal parent today. Can you talk a little bit about what are parents under? What is the what are the the pressures of parenting today? Okay, uh, I want I, I want to talk about the pressures on parenting today, but I think one of the things that used to um, um, provide allied some of the differences among parents in the past, and of course there were lots of parent lots of differences in the past as well, was a faith in the future. Parents did believe that America would provide their children with opportunities. And even African-American parents, after the 1950s and after the, inter- the integration of schools, began to believe that the, that the American promise could potentially be fulfilled. There has been a retreat from that today. And I think that has, more than anything else, kind of broken up uh, parents into these different groups. Once they lost that common belief that the future would be better, and therefore their children could benefit from it. I think it has led to a lot of anxiety spilling out in all kinds of directions. The best way to understand it, I think, is by talking about three different, two different kinds of anxieties. The first is the anxiety about danger to children in the society. Uh, today's mothers, because so, there are so many, there are so many single mothers, in fact, without fathers in the household to help them. A lot of mothers are terribly afraid because the media has exaggerated the kinds of dangers that children experience. They exaggerate the dangers of vaccines. They exaggerate the dangers of stranger abductions. They exaggerate the dangers of, you know, various kinds of accidents. In fact, anyone who looks at the statistics knows that our children are safer today than they've ever been before. But, but the anxiety about it the pressure and the amount of information that's out there on the media, including on various blogs and on the Internet, has made parents very, very anxious. So that's, yes. So that's, so child survival is still an issue. Yes, and yet, yeah, isn't that interesting? We still, parents still worry that their children are endangered in a way that the parents in the 19th century really experienced, and yet we today, that plays into the gut of a mother. Let's put it that way. The fear about her child's being alive and safety plays into the mother's gut. The other kind of anxiety is an economic anxiety. And that, I think, has, has led to uh, fears that our children will not have it as, as good as we had it, whether you're in the working class or in the middle class or in, even in the upper middle class. Parents today imagine, in the context of globalization, that the kinds of opportunities that their children had once they came out of school, once they came out of high school in the 1950s or college in the 1960s and 70s, those are now no longer assured. The competition is everywhere, and it's very intense. So that in both of those things have led to much greater management of children. It's, it's in the subtitle of my book uh, that the, the emphasis on managing children, on making sure they're going to go along the right track so that they will, A, be safe, and be, success, be successful, instead of the Ds of the early, 19th, uh, early 20th century, we now have the Ss, safety and success, has led to a kind of loss of faith that the children can do it on their own. So we have delayed the maturity of children. That's not 
entirely within our own hands. It has to do with the extension of schooling. As schooling gets longer and longer, children mature later and later. But we've also delayed the maturity of children because we don't acknowledge their resourcefulness. We don't see them as being able to cope. One thing I was wondering is, reflecting on your book as a whole and, and looking at it today is, what are we rearing children for? What kind of society are we? And are we just thinking about economics or are we thinking about empathy and values that we can instill in our children? What are we rearing them for just to survive economic competition and predators? Lillian, you're wonderful. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you. That is exactly the question that I'd like to raise at the, at the end of this program. In other words, we have become so, so attached to the idea that success is the only component of child rearing, that we have lost the whole American tradition of child rearing, is that we have, we are raising children towards, with various kinds of objectives to be their own people, to be empathetic, to be moral in the, in the terms of the early 19th century, to be civic citizens, to be engaged in their society, to interact with others as equals, not just to see themselves as superior because they've gotten a superior education and are working for Google, but in fact to engage in the old American conception that we are a republic and that we live in a society where all participate and all have opportunities for the future. So the question of how we're raising our children, I think, is one that we need to confront mothers with right now. Is it only to survive and to succeed? You put it exactly right. Or are there other objectives that we bring to the table, whether they're religious objectives or they're civic objectives or they're objectives even of remembering who we are as a society and remembering our history? I want us to think about that. But our but parents today have become very, very anxious. They've become um, um, directive, and they've lost a sense, I think, of their, their children's individual potentials. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website, www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.